Holy Father, your word says to go into all the world and to make disciples, make converts of all peoples, baptizing these new converts in your name, and then teaching them the whole counsel of Scripture. That is our challenge. You've gifted us differently, but you've called us in a broad sense for all of us to be teachers, to be able to answer basic questions. And so we pray as we interact with this challenging portion of Scripture today, that we would gird up our minds for action, that we would pay close attention, that we might understand it and apply it properly. We pray for the congregations as they meet in Graniteville this morning and in Grace. We pray for each person listening that you would give them one person, just one person, that they could invite in this coming week. We pray the same for here, that you would give us at least one person. Thank you for the opportunities we have even this month. We pray for those that will come to hear David Barton on Tuesday, and we know some will be unbelievers. May it be a turning point in their life. May you grip them and grab them as only you are able to do. And as we reach out through our Valentine's banquet and our gathering on the last Friday of the month, our oyster roasts, and we ask your blessing on that, that you'd give us chances and opportunities. Help us not to miss this week people that you will bring into our path who, if nothing else, we might invite to church. So we humbly come. We ask that you would speak. Help me, Father, because without you, I can do nothing with you. All things are possible. I pray you'd fill me and use me in this service. And tonight, as we host Mute the Pastor, that you'd bring people who are Christians who need a church home and unsaved people who need to know what it means to be converted. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning and turn to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah chapter 2. Be careful in finding it. If two or three pages stick together, you can easily miss it. If you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms. It's about dead center. Scan to the right. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And so use your table of contents. Don't be embarrassed. Even a lot of veteran Christians can't find Jonah. Jonah is a prophet of God who lives 750 years before Christ. And even if you've never read much of the Bible or even this prophet, you probably know something about him. Most people know, oh yeah, Jonah, he was swallowed by a whale. It's a whale of a story, they think. But it's historical fact. It actually happened. You know, it's not news when we read a dog bites man, but news is when man bites a dog. <laughs> it's not news when a man catches a fish, but it's news when a fish catches a man. And so this morning, we want to start by looking at the verse we left off on, just one verse, Jonah chapter 2 and verse 10, and then we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we're going to see its prophetic significance. This is a very important section of Scripture to the Lord Jesus, to the people that he encounters. Now, if you're here for the first time, this is the fifth of what I project to be 10 messages on the book of Jonah. So just briefly, let me review where we are. We met Jonah in chapter one. He's running from God, and so we've entitled that chapter, The Prodigal Prophet. 
God commissioned him to preach. The message that he preached is given in Jonah chapter three and verse four. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in our English Bible, five words in the Hebrew text. The shortest message given to a rebellious people. And yet God cared about the people of Nineveh. While they weren't interested in God, God was interested in Nineveh. This was not some hard, fast prophecy that he's going to destroy the Ninevites. Otherwise, he never would have sent Jonah to preach. This was God in his grace and mercy and compassion reaching out to a nation of people. He cared, and we should care too. If your heart is cold where you've stopped caring for lost people, get it right before you leave today. If you can't remember the last time you even attempted to share the gospel, share a word of testimony, maybe invited someone to church. It's either A, you've never been born again, or B, your heart is just cold and stale and you don't want to stay there. So here's this prophet. God says, go east to Nineveh. He goes west to Tarshish. Becomes a tourist, as it were, gets on a Mediterranean cruise, but because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he hurls a storm from heaven on the ocean. Now the sailors, they don't know where this storm has come from, but they know it's divine bad. And so they try to do things. They each pray and call on their gods and that doesn't work. And so they try to get rid of things. They cast the cargo overboard. That doesn't work. And by the way, that's what a lot of unsaved people do today. They try to do certain things or they try to stop doing other things, but that can't fix the problem. And so ultimately, they throw this substitute, Jonah, overboard, and the storm immediately ceases. Now, before long, Jonah is uh, in the mouth of a great fish. His whale house becomes a jailhouse. You say, was he swallowed by a literal whale? Well, uh, the text says here, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days, and three nights. The Lord appointed a great fish, a dagadal in Hebrew. Might have been a whale. Interestingly, the King James Version in the New Testament speaks on this passage, and they render it three days and three nights in the whale's belly. The New King James renders it three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. We don't know that it was a whale. May very well have been a whale, It was just a large sea creature. You say, is that possible? God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. And whether you believe it or not, it's still settled truth. Look, I would have no more confidence in the Bible if they found some petrified skeleton with Jonah's initials carved into the ribs than I do with the written scripture right here. God can do whatever he wants to do. And if he wanted to appoint a great fish and have a bedroom full of furniture and a refrigerator in it, he could have. He can do whatever he wants to do. But then we read in chapter 2 and verse 10, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited up Jonah onto the dry land. Now hold that thought and turn to the gospel of Matthew because we have some divine commentary on all that happened here in Jonah. Matthew chapter 12 Again, if you're new, it's the very first book in the New Testament. Go to Matthew chapter 12. I am so pleased to see so many of you with Bibles this morning. Some of you are here for the first time and you don't 
bring a Bible because you don't think you need a Bible. And sadly, you don't in most churches today. But I'm not here to share my opinion. We are here to open the word of God. And in Matthew 12, Jesus references Jonah as a real historical person. And this is a real event with a real fish. And he has said in uh, verse 39 that an evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Then he said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what is the sign of Jonah? And why did the Lord say that this would be the only sign given to unbelieving Israel? What precisely precipitated that statement by Jesus? And then we're going to see in the context of that statement that some of the religious leaders are about to commit a sin called blasphemy against the spirit that is so serious that Jesus said it cannot be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. There is a sin that God cannot forgive. So we need to understand not only what is the sign of Jonah, we need to clearly understand what is blasphemy against the spirit. Sometimes Christians have asked me, I think maybe I've committed blasphemy against the Spirit. And over the decades, I've encountered unbelievers who said, I'm not sure I can become a Christian. I think I have committed the unforgivable sin. So we're going to study it in depth. Now, I'm not going to read every verse in Matthew 12, but let's hit some of the highlights. Matthew 12, starting in verse 22, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and who is, does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now drop down to verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline, there's one in the bulletin. If you are online, you can print it out. We want to study this portion of Scripture under three headings. So let's first consider the miracle that was performed. Let's first think about the miracle that was performed. 
Look again in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now, notice the very first word in verse 22. It's the word then. You might want to circle that. By the way, if you have a paper Bible, it will help you to learn the Bible. And if you are actually engaged in trying to bring people to Christ and disciple them, this is a question they are going to ask you. It's not if, it's when. You need to be able to respond. And so some of the notes that I ask you to write on the margin will be helpful to you later on. You'll say, oh yeah, Pastor Carl gave me this verse. Maybe we should look at it. And it will spark some thought, I hope. Then, that's the first word. It takes us back to verse 14. And that the ones who brought this demon-possessed man to Jesus are called the Pharisees. And in that verse, it says they conspired as to how they might destroy him. So here's a man who was blind, he could not see, and he was mute, he could not speak. And so communication is very, very difficult. The Pharisees brought this man in this sad state. He's blind, he's mute, add to that he's demon-possessed. They thought, this is it, we've struck gold. Here's the perfect illustration to show that Jesus is not who he claimed to be. But the Bible says in verse 22, he healed him. So that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. He put them right back on their heels. Now notice the response in verse 23. All the crowds, some of the older translations say all the multitudes. It's the Greek word oklos. It's used of not a handful of people, but a great number of people. Say, how great? Well, for instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane and Oklos, a crowd, a great multitude came and arrested Jesus, and there was over a thousand people who came to arrest him there in Gethsemane. So when you say the word crowd or multitude, depending on your English Bible, it's talking about a whole lot of people, a lot of folks present on this day, and they were amazed. It's the strongest Greek word used to describe amazement. We might say they were blown away, they were overwhelmed, they were beside themselves. And so they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? So they're astonished. And it prompts a question concerning the possibility, the way it's structured in Greek, is not a rhetorical question, meaning yes, he is. It's structured, there's a possibility. But probably not. He can't possibly be the son of David, could he? That's their thinking. Now, why would they think that way? Because one of the great pictures of the Messiah in the Bible is that when he comes, he comes not just to do miracles, but he comes to rule and reign. And of course, there's two pictures of the Messiah found in Scripture. Not only is he the sovereign king, he is the suffering servant. But before he rules and reigns over the whole earth, he must first come and suffer and die there on Calvary. And so they raised the faint possibility, yes, this is a miracle, but we don't see him ruling and reigning like we're promised concerning the Messiah. And what they didn't understand is that first he comes to die as a suffering servant, then he comes a second time as the sovereign king. Well, the people nonetheless are amazed, and this is threatening to the religious leaders. So they dismiss the possibility entirely. Look at 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So they're open to the possibility that he could be the Messiah. 
And the Pharisees just squish it. They say, no, what he is doing is done by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub was the name of a Philistine god, and it meant Lord of the Flies. They can't deny this triple miracle. It's clear. A triple miracle has taken place. The demons are gone. The man can see, and now he can speak. So what do they do? They say, we can't deny the miracle, but we can tell you how the miracle came down. It didn't come down by this one called Jesus. By his power, it came by the power of the devil himself. Now, Beelzebul, this Phoenician god, it's really the god of filth. How did they come up with this god? Well, number one, they suppressed the truth of God. When men reject the one true God, revelation that God has given to all men through creation and conscience, when they suppress God's eternal attributes, his divine nature and power, then they come up and believe and worship the creation. That's where America is. We're worshiping the creation. We're worshiping the green God, not the one true God of the Holy Scripture. It's literally become a God with sacraments and everything else, it seems, in which they follow and espouse. Well, they came up with this God. There's a piece of dung on the ground, and all of a sudden, life comes from it. Maggots come, and they're crawling everywhere. There it is. This is the God of filth. We need to worship him. And so that's what they say Jesus has done. He's done it. It became synonymous with the Pharisees because they obviously didn't believe in worshiping the creation. But they said, this is, this is the satanic God that the Philistines worship. And Jesus is doing what he is doing by Satan himself. Now, up until this time, Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God being near. But after this event... It stops. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, I took more courses under him than any professor. I loved Dr. Pentecost. We became great friends, and I was able to pick up the phone and call him long after I graduated from this school. And he said, Carl, the key, the key to understanding Matthew 13 is Matthew chapter 12. Now, if you know Matthew 13, it's the kingdom parables. Why has Christ postponed the kingdom, because of Matthew chapter 12, because of their rebellion, because they are saying this one, Yeshua, Jesus, is doing what he is doing by the power of the devil himself. Now, that's the first point, the miracles that were performed. Secondly, there in your outline, let's think further about the parables that were expressed, the parables that were expressed. And I say parables because this is the terminology that the Gospel of Mark uses in the parallel account. Next to verse 24, write out Mark 3.23, Mark 3.23. Let me read it to you. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? So Jesus went on to explain that the kingdom of God has arrived not by giving them a lecture on theology, but by painting pictures, getting their attention through parables. So let's talk about a parable for a moment. It just literally comes from the Greek into English, parabole. Para means alongside, bole means to cast. 
And so it's a, it's a figure of speech where you cast alongside an illustration with a teaching. It, it's not just like an illustration a pastor might give. It's not a figure of speech. It, it, it's, it, it's a teaching that has an illustration cast alongside of it so that you might make a decision. He's calling people to respond when he gives these parables. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21, where you read of some of the parables of Christ, they are so penetrating, they are so personal that the chief priests and the Pharisees from that day on want to seize him and they want to murder him. So now we read in verse 25 of Matthew 12, and knowing their thoughts, circle that word thoughts, it's critical to understanding the passage, and knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, knowing what these Pharisees were thinking, Jesus now defends his authority, that he is the Messiah, and he uses three arguments that you do not want to miss. Argument number one, it's found here where he says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. So first he said, if he were casting out demons by Satan's power, then Satan clearly would be working against himself. By the way, he affirms that Satan has a kingdom. He affirms that Satan has a house, and the house that's described, and it's further elucidated for us later in the chapter in verses 42 and 43, is a man's body. This was Satan's house, and not only does he have a house, he has houses, as the verses that follow will indicate. His point is, is that if Satan casts out demonic powers out of his house, then he's opposing himself. Why? Because any kingdom, any city, any household divided against itself will not stand. And so it's a basic reason of truth. Therefore, he asked this question in verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? It cannot. Put out on the margin another verse that's important. Mark 3.26 in the parallel text. Write it down. Mark 3.26. Let me read it to you. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. Why would Satan let Jesus cast out a demon and free a man who's already under his power and control? To do so would divide his kingdom And he may be wicked, but he is certainly not stupid. Satan is not fighting against himself. Their argument is both illogical, it's ridiculous, it's impractical, because Satan would never fight against himself. But Satan has a kingdom. He's called the God, small g, of this age. Adam lost the right to rule, and Satan gained it. Christ will someday fully secure it when he rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. So that's his first argument. It's illogical for Satan to fight against himself. Notice his second argument in verse 27. If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they shall be your judges." If your sons, meaning the disciples of the Pharisees, cast out demons by the power of God, which they were quick and ready to affirm, 
If the power to cast out demons as the Pharisees argued in that day came from the hand of God itself, then why would you come to a different conclusion concerning me? If you are going to say that I am casting out demons by the evil one, then you have to conclude that your sons, your disciples are casting out demons by the evil ones and you would never come to that conclusion. And so under pressure coming up with this explanation, they've really painted themselves into a corner. If it was Satan's power, then both they and their sons are operating under that same power. So that's his second argument. If you believe exorcists who represent you because the Pharisees were over that group of people, if they're casting it out by the power of Satan, then you, uh, by, if I'm casting out by the power of Satan, then you have to conclude your disciples are doing the same. Now, the third argument, don't miss it, verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of, has come, why? Because the king is present. How do we know the king is present? because he's doing the things that Messiah King was promised to do. Now, certainly, Jesus is not the only one who did miracles up till this time in human history. But miracles were never done consistently through the history of Israel, just on the great turning points. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob never did a miracle. First one to do a miracle was Moses, and then for a short time, Joshua, until they went into the promised land. Hundreds of years went by, none of the prophets, major, minor, Ever did a miracle? Elijah and Elisha did, because again, it was one of the great turning points of Israel's history. Now, miracles were done, but not through men. Daniel witnessed miracles. Isaiah witnessed miracles. But through men, no, just a limited select few. And hundreds of years go by, and we don't see the next cluster of miracles until Christ and the apostles come on the scene. And there were some miracles that were unique to Messiah. No one opened blind eyes before. That's a messianic miracle according to Isaiah 35. Now, while we're here for a moment, let's think about the kingdom of God for just a moment because there are three aspects to God's kingdom that the scriptures delineate for us. Certainly, there's the aspect that God is sovereign, that he is ruling and reigning over the whole world. For instance, uh, in Psalm 103, 19, we read, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. You need to write down these verses. I'll tell you why, because there's a whole group of Christians, they're called amillennialists, and they say this is all there is concerning the kingdom. And so the way they are approaching these days that we are living in is distorted and twisted. They think somehow things are going to turn around and everything's going to change when they need to be warning God's people. We are in that time frame called the latter days when Israel would be back in the land. This is the final time frame of human history. But they are right in saying, certainly God is ruling in heaven above. Listen to what David said in Psalm 145, 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. 
But what they don't see and what they deny is a literal kingdom because they think the church has replaced Israel. We haven't replaced Israel. God has made a covenant with the Jews that as long as the sun and the stars and the moon are in the skies, Jeremiah 31 says, I will not forsake Israel. And so God made a promise of a kingdom to the Jews and we pray it, your kingdom come, your will be done literally on earth as it is in heaven. And so the scripture pictures Messiah coming back, standing on the top of the Mount of Olives, and he will rule sovereignly across the world. And the New Testament gives us the length of that kingdom being a thousand years. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You're praying for the literal kingdom. On the other hand, beyond the fact that God is ruling today in heaven above, someday God will literally rule on earth below. God is ruling within hearts today through a second birth. And so Jesus can say, the kingdom of God is within you in Luke 17, 21. Meaning when you are saved, when you are born again, you have been visited by the Spirit of God and His kingdom is operative in your heart. There's a spiritual dimension to the kingdom. And that's why prior in this section, back in verse 18, you will notice an Old Testament quote. You see the change in the typeset? Don't look at me, look at your Bible, I want you to get it. Uh, See the change in typeset? That tells you it's an Old Testament quotation, and it's coming from Isaiah 42 and verse 1. It's a messianic prophecy. Let me read it to you from Matthew's account. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This is the kingdom of God in their midst. Now he tells us another mini parable. Notice verse 29. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He is reminding them that if a burglar goes into a house, he cannot rob it unless somehow he can overpower and maybe tie up the owner. And Jesus in effect is saying, Satan is the strong man and I am invading Satan's territory, and I'm able to do it because I'm more powerful than Satan. By driving out these demons that inhabited this man shows that he is stronger than Satan, that he's not in league with Satan, but that he's against Satan. Put out in the margin, would you, Luke 11, 21 to 22, Luke 11, 21 to 22, where we have the fuller reading of what Jesus said. He has entered into Satan's realm and he's come with the spoils of victory. Notice what Luke says. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. Jesus is stronger than the strong man. He's not captive to the evil one. He's not controlled by the evil one. The Spirit of God is upon him. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he therefore has brought the kingdom of God in their midst. Now, okay, you with me? Say amen, okay. There's the miracles that were performed. There is the parables that were expressed. Third and finally, let's think about the conclusions, the conclusions that were drawn. So starting in verse 30, there's a conclusion you must make because everyone must choose sides. Neutrality is not an option. Notice, he who is not with me 
is against me. There can be no compromise. You're either with the Lord Jesus or you are against him. There's no middle ground. He removes every possible illusion for neutrality. And everyone within the sound of my voice will make a decision. You will either stand for Christ or against Christ. You say, I won't make a decision. Not to make a decision is to make a decision. There's no such thing as neutrality, not in God's kingdom. Furthermore, he says, and he who does not gather with me, notice, he scatters. If you do not gather or work for the Lord Jesus, either by your active opposition or your passive indifference, then you're against him. You are not for him. You're either on his team or you're not. And if you're not involved in gathering for the kingdom of God, then you're scattering or you are out of fellowship. If you can't remember the last time you tried to win someone to Christ, share a word of testimony, maybe something as simple as invite them to church or some event, then you're either A, lost, as he's describing it in this passion, this section, or B, you are out of fellowship with God and your heart is a million miles away. I don't care how many Bible studies you attend, how often you come to church, if you are not engaged in bringing people into the kingdom, and you're really not gathering for Christ. So Jesus' statement here would have been a rebuke and a warning to these Pharisees because they too needed to make a decision. And so notice the serious warning that follows, verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. So the verse starts, notice with the word therefore, because Jesus wants them to decide how these miracles were done. You can't remain neutral. neutral. And he's not just speaking to the Pharisees, but to the oikos, to the crowd, to the multitude that are present on this particular day. Now, certainly this verse has created a lot of consternation in people's hearts, sometimes amongst Christians, sometimes amongst unbelievers. So let's first talk for just a moment about what blasphemy of the Spirit is not. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, is not some moral sin. It's not rape or murder or adultery or child abuse. As wicked as those things are, anyone who's committed those sins can still be saved. They can still be forgiven. Nor is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit some intellectual sin. As the agnostic or the atheist says, well, I I, I was a confessing agnostic. Well, you weren't. You really weren't because there's no such thing. It's only the arrogant, prideful testimony that says, I was an atheist. Don't say you're an atheist because you weren't. That's a lie. You weren't an atheist. Now, you might say, I confess to be an atheist, but every man in his heart of hearts knows there is a God. Well, I was an agnostic and I just was opposed to God. I hated God. I've committed an unpardonable sin. No, there are atheists and so-called agnostics who have repented and believed and found forgiveness. Neither is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, just some verbal sin, some curse against God. And by the way, just like you can pray without words, you can curse God without words. One of the key words I ask you to circle is the word thoughts. You can commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in your thoughts. 
because the thoughts ultimately can show itself in words. Knowing their thoughts, verse 25 says. Now, since this is an unforgivable sin, we need to know exactly what it is. So let's start by defining the word blasphemy. It's the word blasphemia in the verb blasphemao. Uh, it comes right into English as blasphemy, and it's used in two levels in Scripture. It's used of someone who speaks against or insult or incurses another human, or it's used of someone who speaks against the living God. You can blaspheme people. For instance, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, there it is, it's the word blaspheme in some English translations, render it that way. Be put away from you along with all malice. So here he speaks of insults or curses that one human directs against another human made in the image of God. Look, it happens to every Christian. It happens to me as a pastor. People will say things against me and my wife just says, that's part of being a pastor. And I said, you're right. They can blaspheme me until the day never ends. But by God's grace, I'm going to walk with him. And listen, if you crumble because someone slanders you, I hope you will keep walking with God because it is part of being a Christian. But understand, you can also not just insult and curse humans and misrepresent them. You can insult and curse the living God. You can insult God the Father, and that can be forgiven. We've been in a series on Moses on Wednesday nights, right? And, and so the people leave uh, Egypt, and during the time of the Exodus, they gather all their gold, and they make this golden calf, and they, calf, and they say, this is the God that delivered us out of Egypt. God calls that blasphemy. How do I know? Because Scripture interprets Scripture. And Nehemiah 9.18 gives us divine commentary on that verse. Even when they made for themselves a calf of gold and metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt, committed great blasphemies. This was considered a blasphemy against God the Father. That can be forgiven. So as we're defining terms, know first that words of cursing and insult towards God, the Father, or towards a fellow human being can be forgiven. And yet the passage is very specific about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven. Let's read verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Now verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So second, we need to ask an important question at this point. Why does verse 31 indicate that any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people? And I suppose we should pause here for just a moment because while we're speaking about what cannot be forgiven, we ought to underscore too what can be forgiven. Put it out there in the margin, Mark 3.28. Mark 3.28, let me read it to you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, all sins, all sins, will be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, there is not a sin that you have committed that God cannot forgive, 
under the term blasphemy. God can forgive blasphemy against the Father. He can forgive all kinds of wickedness that you can think of. In fact, he can forgive blasphemy against the Son. We just read it. Well, why is it that God can forgive blasphemy against himself and blasphemy against his Son, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now, listen carefully. The very first witness God brought came from the Father. He's called John the Baptist. He's prophesied in Isaiah 40, chapter 40, and he's prophesied in the last chapter of Malachi. And he is the forerunner of the Messiah. He was God's witness that the Messiah is going to come. And what did they do with John the Baptist? They rejected his witness. They said, we don't want to hear his witness. Now, many people responded, but understand, the leaders of Israel rejected him. And he spoke with them some very strong words. But not only was there the witness of God the Father, there was the second witness of God the Son. They had heard the words. They had seen the works and the miracles of the Messiah, the way he acted. Prophecy after prophecy was being fulfilled, and yet they turned their heart against him, and they were rejecting the witness of God the Son. There's only one witness left. That's the witness of God the Holy Spirit. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son will be forgiven him. Now, understand, some did not fully comprehend who Jesus was and what he did, though had they searched the Scriptures, Jesus said, the Scriptures speak about me, they could have only have come to one conclusion. And yet, clearly, there were many evil words that were spoken against the Lord Jesus, and those things could be forgiven. But God could not forgive these blasphemous words against the Spirit of God. Does that mean the Spirit of God is more important than Jesus? Of course not. Now, it is interesting when men often curse God, they never curse the Holy Spirit. I've never heard someone take the Holy Spirit's name in vain. But I've heard them take the Father's name in vain and Jesus' name in vain. And what's interesting to me is I've been in foreign countries and I've heard Muslims Take the name of the Lord Jesus in vain. Interesting just to think about. So while they rejected the first witness of the Father, that could be forgiven. While they rejected the second witness of the Son, that could be forgiven. But the only witness left was God the Holy Spirit. And to shut your heart to Him, there's no one else who can speak to you. You literally pluck out your spiritual eyes and you can enter into a realm of irreversible consequences. Now, the unpardonable sin in the immediate context was the Lord Jesus doing miracles. And they said the power in Jesus that was operating was not God the Holy Spirit, though it was obvious that he was. It was obvious this is what the Messiah do. He would open up blind eyes. The Spirit of the Lord would be upon him. And they attributed his power to Satan. But understand, it is still a sin that can be committed, and I don't want you to miss this, and it will become so plain from the text. Some people say it can't be committed today because you cannot replicate the circumstances. Jesus is not physically on the earth where we can blaspheme the Spirit of God through him. And by the way, understand that the Lord Jesus, when he emptied himself, we speak of the kenosis. I did a whole sermon on that recently from 
Philippians. He didn't divest himself of any of his divine attributes, but he is willing to lay aside the exercise of those divine attributes and live in dependence upon the Spirit of God. Now, follow carefully. Look at verse 33. Either make the tree good. Jesus is calling them to make a decision. They hadn't committed this sin yet. You say, did they commit the sin? No, they didn't. Not while Jesus was here. We'll see that in a moment. They hadn't committed it yet. So he's appealing to them. Why? Because he loves them. He loves these people who hated him. He prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't really understand what they're doing. Either make the good tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. To have good fruit, you have to have a good tree. You cultivate it, you fertilize it, but if it's neglected or abused, it's going to produce bad fruit. Now, his illustration is clear. He is obviously not in league with the devil because of the fruit of his life. He went about, as Peter said, doing nothing but good. Everything he did was compassionate and good. He never had an ugly word, never had a, un, a mean thought. Everything he said, did, and acted was absolutely holy. But by contrast, look at the Pharisees, verse 34. You brood, you, you children, you offspring of vipers. How can you being evil speak what is good for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart? The bad fruit of their words in condemning Jesus just indicate that they are bad trees. And it's evident by what's coming out of their mouth. By the way, everywhere in Matthew where he describes a brood of vipers, it's always in reference to the leadership of Israel. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The mouth, sooner or later, is going to reveal what is taking place in the heart. And these Pharisees were slandering Jesus. They were blaspheming Jesus by saying that what he was doing was by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were walking right up to the edge of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so verse 35, the good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. He is making it clear that this sin against the Spirit is not simply a matter of speech. It's a matter of fruit. It's a matter of the heart, what comes from the inside. If the treasury of the heart is good, it's going to come out on the lips. If the treasury of the heart is fallen, evil, and opposed to God, that too will come out on the lips. And so he draws a conclusion in verse 36. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. He doesn't want to give these Pharisees a sense of satisfaction. He wants to make it very clear that their careless words were going to condemn them. In fact, he says in verse 37, for by your words you are justified and by your words you are condemned. Now, he's not saying that by some form of clever speech, you can make yourself righteous before God. But he is saying if the heart is right, it's going to show itself in the lips. That's why we are an invitational church, and without apology, 
Why? Because Jesus said, if someone will not openly, publicly confess me before men, I will never confess them before my Father who's in heaven. Because the mouth again speaks that which is in the heart. But the basis for our justification or our condemnation is our relationship to God. And when you will take it further into the new covenant that is not enacted in its fullest sense until after Calvary and right at Pentecost, when you are born again, your character changes. And if your character does not fundamentally change, you are not a new creature in Christ where the old things have passed away and everything has become new and you're still a child of the evil one. Now, notice how the scribes and the Pharisees respond to what he said. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Of course, their desire for some sign or miracle was just to dump on him again to reject him. He had done sign after sign after sign. People today say, well, if I could only see a miracle, I would believe. Not so. Jesus walked on the earth, and before the religious leadership, he did miracle after miracle after miracle. But not everyone responded. Remember the parable, or if it's not a parable, it's a true story, and it would be the only parable with someone's name in it. It doesn't change the meaning. I don't want to argue over a split over some hair, but don't miss the point of Luke 16. And he said to this rich, this rich man who dies and goes to hell because he had never repented, he had never believed, He said, I beg you, Father, that you send him, meaning Lazarus, who is in Abraham's bosom. He's in righteous Sheol. This rich man is in unrighteous Sheol, a place of torment. Send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. That's saying they have the scripture. Let them hear them. So he responds. But no, Father Abraham, uh, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to the Moses and the prophets, if they won't listen to the Bible, if they won't listen to the scriptures, to the Tanakh, to the Old Testament, they will not be persuaded even if someone comes from the dead. So Jesus makes it very clear that if someone will not believe God's word, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. They will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And so Jesus shoots straight up with these guys in verse 39. Notice, he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. He condemned their seeking after a sign. Why? Because he was already authenticated through the miracles he had done. And that's all they needed, not to mention the scripture itself. Now, on occasion, God grants signs to those who are weak in faith, but they are not opposed to the living God. But to reason that somehow if I had a miracle, I would believe it's just not true. In fact, there's coming a time when Jesus will reign and rule on the earth for a thousand years. And tribulation saints who enter into the millennial reign of the Messiah in their natural body will have children and grandchildren and great-great-great-great-grandchildren who will live for nearly a thousand years. Some of their children won't believe. Even with Jesus ruling and reigning, and that's one of the functions of the millennial reign of Messiah. If you were with us in our study of the Revelation, we went for six reasons for the millennial reign of Christ. And one reason is it shows just how fallen we are by nature. But faith doesn't come from miracles. 
They've got Moses and the prophets. Paul says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so to ask for a sign was a mark of unbelief. They were basically committing spiritual adultery. God likens his relationship to the Jewish people as he being the groom and there being the bride, the same imagery in the New Testament. And when they wandered away, they were committing spiritual adultery, and that's where these men were. Nothing Jesus could have done could have convinced them. So there's one sign left. Did they commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit on this day? Absolutely not. Don't miss that. Because... If they had committed it, there would be no need for a sign. It would already be too late. But it wasn't too late. They had one more sign. And by the way, some Pharisees did respond. Read Acts 15. So notice, he describes the sign of Jonah and he defines it in verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster... So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the sign of Jonah was being three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. Three days and three nights. And so he is an illustration of what the Lord Jesus is going to do. Now some people say, well, when Jonah was in the mouth of the great fish, he died. Very few expositors teach that, but a few guys that I admired, like J. Vernon McGee, he taught that, much to my surprise. He went to Dallas Seminary, as I did as well, but I think he was just wrong on it. And his argument was, if you have read him, is, well, if he didn't die, then how is it really an illustration of Christ being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Well, certainly there's no type, no illustration that has a perfect correlation, Isaac is up on top of Mount Moriah, and the New Testament definitively says in Hebrews 11, he was a type of Christ. But did he die? Of course not. He was as healthy as a horse. Now, he was as good as dead. Abraham was ready to plunge the knife in his heart, but he didn't die. Neither did Jonah die. We saw him praying in the mouth of the great fish. He's very much alive. And even if he had died, it wouldn't be a perfect correspondence because even if he had died in the mouth of the great fish and then came back to life, he would have come back to life in his, resur in his uh, normal natural body. And Christ is the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. But he was as good as dead. And so the parallel between Jonah and between Christ is clear. Three days and three nights. By the way, I think we should pause here. Let me run down a rabbit trail without getting too far offhand. People will say, well, how is it? Three days and three nights. Does that mean Jesus was in the tomb for 72 hours? And some conclude that. Some conclude that Jesus died on Wednesday and that he was raised from the dead on Saturday evening, before Saturday night, before the, the day started. Um, I don't think so. Now, most of the people who have actually put forth those suggestions have been cultists, like uh, Worldwide Church of God, and sadly, some Christians have adopted it thinking it was right. But it's important for us to know that the way a Jew reckons a day is very different from the way we might reckon a day at this time in human history. Number one, a Jewish day does not start at midnight like our day does. We really follow the, the Roman Gentiles. A Jewish day, as most of you know, started in the evening. 
And so Sabbath always begins at sundown. And so on the days of creation, evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two. Secondly, the way a Jew reckoned a day was different from the way we reckon a day. Any part of a day could, could be considered a whole day. By the way, they do the same thing with years. If a king ruled for 14 months and one month was in this year and then 12 months in this year and one month in the next year, then it was said that he reigned for three years. And there's documentation of that not only within Scripture but outside of Scripture. So these people who are looking for errors in the Bible, they're just ignorant. They, they, they just don't know what God has written in Scripture. Well, in the same way, any part of a day is reckoned as a whole day. Now, in Mark 15, 42, we are told that Jesus died the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath was Saturday. So he dies on Friday. Now, of course, the women wanted to anoint the Lord Jesus after he had died, but his body had already been taken by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and placed in a tomb. So they have to wait until Sunday morning because it would be inappropriate for them to anoint him during the time of the Sabbath. So John records in John 20 and verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early in the morning. Notice on the first day of the week, that is Sunday. And it's significant because the gospel says that Christ died and was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And so the scripture predicted that the Messiah would rise on the third day in such passages like this. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, even so the son of man. And it forces us who are not familiar with Jewish days to ask a question. Well, how do we get that he rose on the third day? Because he dies on Friday, what time? 3 p.m. He's in the tomb before Sabbath starts on Saturday evening. That's day one. He's in the tomb Friday night through Saturday evening. That's day two. And then between Saturday night and early Sunday morning, he walks out of the grave. The angel rolls the stone away, not to let him out, but to show that he is gone. And so a day and a night can represent a whole day. And you know that not only from the way Jesus describes his own resurrection in another text, but when you let Scripture interpret Scripture and you look at even sources outside of Scripture. For instance, Queen Esther, most of you know her. She decides to go in and to see King Ahasuerus at the risk of her own life. So she asked Mordecai and all her fellow Jews to pray and to fast. Let me read to you from Esther 4.16. She says, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And then two verses later, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. It came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. She asked them to pray three days, but on the third day, before it was completed, she approaches the king. Why? Because a part of a day can represent an entire day. King David, jot down this verse, 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel 30, 12 and 13. By the way, you should write these down. You're going to be asked. You say, I'm not going to be asked. If you're not going to be asked, it tells me you're not discipling people. <laughs> it tells me you're not engaged in people. If you're never asked a question from the Bible, it, it just you're telling on yourself. You're living in disobedience. 
King David found an Egyptian in a field who had testified he had, quote, not eaten or drunk for three days and three nights. And then the man in the next breath will say, I fell sick three days ago. Three days and three nights. It's a Jewish idiom where a part of a day can represent an entire day. Uh, there's a rabbi, very famous rabbi, who is recognized to this day for his writings by Orthodox Jews, Rabbi Azariah. He writes these words in 100 AD. A day and a night make a whole day, and a portion of a whole day is reckoned as a whole day. A day and a night make a whole day, and a portion of a whole day is reckoned as a whole day. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus made this statement in addition to the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote, Christ died for our sins. According to the Scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day. Not after three days, on the third day. Why? Because a part of a day can make a whole day. Is this how Jesus understood it? Absolutely. Put out next to three days and three nights with the sign of Jonah, Luke 9, 22. This is an important statement. The Son of Man, he wrote must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised, how? Up on the third day. Now, I know that was a little rabbit trail, but it was an important rabbit trail because it's a question that many of us will ask at one time or another. And so Jesus said, you're going to be given a sign. And it's the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah came out of that great fish alive, and none of the Pharisees denied that. They believed that was a real miracle that took place on this prophet of God. Even so, the Son of Man is literally going to die, and he is going to come back to life. In fact, the very sign that Jesus is going to give them as the last and final sign to give them an opportunity to believe, meaning they haven't committed blasphemy of the Spirit yet, they help orchestrate. Do you remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up, Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. From their very act of asking for the crucifixion, nailing him to the cross, and many died. But then he was raised, and they were given an opportunity. Now, understand, they should have repented on this day, but they didn't. And to further drive home their hardness of heart, he gives two illustrations, and with that we'll be done. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. They repented at Jonah's preaching, but Jerusalem would not preach at the preaching of Jesus. Yet Jesus is greater than Jonah. He is greater than Jonah in that while both were prophets and both preached truth, both were men. Jesus was more than a man. Jesus was the God-man. He's greater than Jonah in that while Jonah almost died, Jesus did die. 
while Jonah uh, preached about forgiveness of sin, but out of a heart of not compassionate, hoping that God would destroy the Ninevites, Jesus preached forgiveness of sin, even praying for his enemies from the cross, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, praying and earnestly hoping that people will repent. Jonah, he goes outside the city waiting for judgment to fall. Jesus goes outside the city praying for salvation to come in the hearts of those unbelievers. There's a million ways in which the Lord Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jonah, the son of Amittai, he has a cold, indifferent heart, but we're not done with him yet. God is still at work. Look at the second illustration that he gives. I mean, if these Ninevites could could repent and believe on the message that Jonah gave, they didn't see any miracles. You say, didn't they see Jonah come out of the fish? No, as far as we know, they didn't. Maybe, Maybe they heard about it, but we don't know that they knew that. Remember, he's dropped off on the shore and he still has to go some miles to get all the way to Nineveh. They don't see the kinds of miracles that these people saw done through Jesus. They don't come to the assessment that Nicodemus does. No one could do these miracles unless God were with them. Yet they repent. They believe. So they'll stand up in the judgment and they'll condemn the unbelieving Jews. I thought all judgment was given to God. It is. But in the sense they can condemn them because if they could believe with the little amount of revelation they were given then these Jews should have believed with the great amount of revelation. Second illustration, verse 42, the queen of the south shall rise up with this generation of the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I mean, think about the queen of Sheba right out in the margin, 1 Kings 10. Go home and read the chapter. It describes her encounter. She, like the Ninevites, were real historical people. And so for Jesus to liken them as historical people to Jonah, he described Jonah as a real historical person swallowed by a real fish. And so remember, your argument is not with me, it's with Jesus. But here's this woman from the Arabian Peninsula who travels to the ends of the earth, which would be considered about 1,200 miles And she comes and she listens to the words of Solomon and she looks at the worship of the Jewish people and she falls on her face and she says, Jehovah Yahweh, he is God. If she could repent with that small amount of revelation that she had been given, all the more should these Jews have repented. And so her action will condemn all of the unbelievers of of the coming day. So how are we going to apply this text of Scripture? Let me suggest a couple of applications as we close off our time. Um, First, let's ask this question. Is it possible for a Christian to commit the unpardonable sin? Is it possible for a Christian to commit the unpardonable sin? The simple, plain, indisputable biblical answer is absolutely not. Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 1, therefore having been justified, saved by faith, we have peace with God. Not the peace of God, that's experiential, but here he's speaking peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As a believer, you cannot 
commit the unpardonable sin because you have peace with God, this grace in which you stand, he'll go on to explain. You are justified. It doesn't simply mean just as if you never sinned, but it also has the idea just as if you had always obeyed. You are credited with the righteousness of God. There's an exchange that takes place when you call upon Christ for salvation. He credits you with his righteousness. He deems you a saint. And that can never be erased. It can never be undone. The spirit of God is given as the earnest, as the down payment. And Jesus said, when he comes to live in you, he'll be in there forever. You cannot be unborn again. And so Paul will begin Romans 8 with the words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. And then he ends the chapter with these words, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth. And just in case you think I missed something nor any other created thing, and that includes you because you were created, there is nothing that exists that has not been created by God, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now if you can name something that's not covered in those categories on this list, you come up after this service and I will give you $1,000. But you cannot. Don't waste your time. It is impossible for a true born-again child of God to commit the unpardonable sin, not to mention you wouldn't want to. Second, is it possible for an unsaved person to commit the unpardonable sin? And the absolute definitive answer is yes. Now, some are confused because they think the Pharisees committed it in their day. They didn't commit it in their day. The Lord was still reaching out. I'm still going to give you one more chance. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection, which is God's declaration that Jesus is Lord. So let's think about, again, the nature of this sin for a moment. When the leaders rejected John the Baptist, they were rejecting God the Father who had sent John the Baptist. When they were rejecting God the Son, they were rejecting God's second witness. And then when did the Spirit of God come? He came at Pentecost. And when he, the Spirit of God, comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so when someone rejects the Spirit of God speaking to their heart over and over and over and over again, they close their spiritual eyes to truth. They pluck them out, and they will end up committing a sin that cannot be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. To reject the Lord Jesus with little information is bad, but to willfully reject the testimony of the Spirit of God is absolutely fatal. Now, some again would say that this cannot be replicated because Jesus Christ is not physically present. But listen, this was a sin that was going to be committed after Pentecost. They still were going to be given one final sign. The resurrection, and that brought the Spirit. I'm going to send the Father, and I'll send the Spirit. Now, people can blaspheme God and say there's no God, or God's evil, or he hates us. People can blaspheme Christ and say he's a false prophet, he's fictitious. But when they speak against the Spirit of God, they are speaking against their only hope. Because Jesus said no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. 
we are warned in Genesis 6, my spirit shall not always strive with men. No one has ever become a Christian apart from the work of the Holy Spirit because by nature we're opposed to the things of God. And so the Spirit of God works on your life and he convicts you of sin and shows you the guilt and the shame of it, but you say, I don't care. And you harden your heart. Or he comes and someone reaches out to you and and they say, you know, you really need the Lord Jesus and the forgiveness he can offer you. You say, I'm not interested. Hey, why don't you come to church with me? Our pastor opens the Bible. He doesn't share his opinion. He preaches from the word of God. No, thank you. And you say, no, 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 no. And eventually God gives you your wish. So in John 12, Jesus describes those who would not believe. And so they came to the place where they could not believe. Joseph Alexander, a great theologian from Princeton at a time in the 1800s when it was still a Bible-believing seminary, wrote these powerful words. There is a time I know not when, there is a place I know not where, which marks the destiny of men to heaven or despair. There is a line by us not seen, which crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's mercy and God's wrath. How far may we go in, how far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope and where begin the confines of despair, an answer from the skies is sent while it is called today, repent. Why? Because you can cross a line by rejecting the only one who will speak to your heart such that you will not believe in Jesus and not to believe is to remain in eternal condemnation. We beg you, we plead with you, Paul said, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We don't just give people the information of the gospel. That's an education. Neither do we plead with them to receive Christ without any information. That's emotionalism. We take the truth of Scripture and we plead with men, today is the day of salvation. Make a decision because tomorrow may be too late. God brought some of us here within the confines of this message. You're either live streaming or you're listening it to on the radio after or at some other point in life. And God is calling you, today is the day of salvation. And if you keep saying no to the spirit of truth, no, I will not, you are calling him a liar. And you can cross a line where you have blasphemed him and you will never be saved. I have dealt with people in the 40 plus years I've been in ministry to receive Christ. And some people just kept saying no. And I think of one man in particular, and he died saying no. And they want me to preach his funeral. What, am I gonna preach him into heaven, not on your life? Am I gonna tell the grieving family down front that he's in hell? That won't accomplish anything. But I would tell what the rich man said in Luke 16, because if someone did die and go to hell, they wouldn't want their loved ones to be there with them. They'd want them to be in heaven. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for 
the prophet Jonah and how he became an illustration of the very resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray today for someone listening to this message who is not really sure of their salvation. Help them to know that there's no such thing as neutrality, that we are either for Jesus or against him. We either gather, gather or we scatter. Father, help them in simple childlike faith, knowing that Jesus paid for all of our sin, bearing all of its wrath, being declared, Lord, when you raised them from the dead, help them in simple faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me and change me. And Father, for those of us who have made that decision, may we never be ashamed of the gospel. And if our heart is cold and indifferent to trying to bring people into the kingdom, to gather people for Christ's namesake, may we repent of that sin today and get our hearts right. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.